of Daniel chapter 11 is we're going to read about prophecy that was given to Daniel by an angel. At the time it was given, it was about what was going to happen in the future. And much of which would happen way after Daniel had already passed from this life. Hundreds of years later even. And as we've already studied about the four different world empires, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, the Roman, uh, we will continue to study uh, about them as well. And particularly in our study of chapter 11, where we are going to begin tonight will be chapter uh, thir uh, verse 13 of chapter 11. In chapter 11, as we've already noticed, you have uh, the Medo-Persian Empire at first, and then you have Alexander the Great comes on the scene. And then as we've seen in other chapters in Daniel, Alexander the Great dies, and after he dies, there are four generals that kind of take his place and they all have different areas of his um, of the realm that he was over it's divided up like into four sections to these four generals and as we talked several times about the four generals which were uh, represented in other ways such as the leopard that had the four heads would be the four generals and we read about the four horns and then another horn comes up and and so so the, the section that we're in right now is focused more on two of those pieces of property or, or areas or regions. The north and the south, which we've already pointed out, the north is Syria. Remember, one of the generals got that area. And then the south is Egypt. Okay, so what I was saying earlier about these other forces, these Gentile forces, and the history about them is important, but what's most important is that we focus on Palestine, Jerusalem, God's people, and what we see is what's happening to them during all this, these wars that are going on back and forth. Okay, and so also the reason why we don't have a lot of scripture to support a lot of what we're going to study from the book of Daniel is since this section has to do with the um, Grecian period of time that is in that 400 year period that we call the intertestament period and you remember during the intertestament period there was no written revelation and uh, given to the people uh, so so you don't have scripture showing these things taking place. That's where history comes in. If you just read Daniel chapter 11, you start reading it, you tell me who the king of the north is and who the king of the south is from your Bible. You show me in your Bible who they are. You show me who the daughter of the queen is. You show, you see, because when you, as we go through this, to get it right, You've got to know some history. And you're going to see that these kings are constantly changing. It'll be a different king of the north, a different king of the south, another king of the north, another king of the south. And so as you're going through these hundreds of years of period, uh, you, you have to know what was going on to match it so you can really understand who they are. Otherwise, all you can do is say, well, for the king of the north shall return. Well, which king of the north is that? There were a lot of kings of the north. And so to really understand it, you need to you have to research and find out who these kings are and the things that were happening in their lives. And so uh, in chapter 11, we have a lot of history. It's the only way that we can understand exactly what he, uh, the angel is showing uh, Daniel. And here's the, the most amazing thing of it all. When you do this and you put it together right, you get to see how that the prophecies that the angel gave to Daniel, that Daniel wrote in the book, were all fulfilled in minute detail. Some of them hundreds of years 
after it had been prophesied, after it had been shown to Daniel. You can even put the king's names in the places and the events that took place. When I studied, well, it was in the, we studied the intertestament period with Brother, Brother Curtis Cates, but he taught us Daniel in that process. I never learned that much about the intertestament period. But when we finished that study, my faith in God's book was stronger than it had ever been before, primarily because of the book of Daniel. Because I could read of these prophecies and he could match the history with the, the prophecy and show it where it was fulfilled just like the angel had prophesied that it would and Daniel wrote that it would. And so that just doesn't happen by chance. It's too exact. It's so exact that many of the critics say that Daniel had to be written after the facts because it's so exact. But it wasn't. It was written way before these events took place. And so, to me, it's a great, great faith builder. So, in Daniel chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 13, where we left off. For the king of the north shall return, and shall set forth the multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. Remember last time we studied, we talked about the king of the north, the king of the south, and the, they were fighting the battles that were going on uh, among them. And in those times, there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also, the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand, but he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, which by his hand shall be consumed. Now, can any of y'all explain that to me? Do you have any idea what it's talking about whatsoever? Fourteen years after Antiochus the Great was defeated by Ptolemy the Fourth. Philopater, he headed he heads back to invade Egypt. And this time he has a stronger and a larger army than he had before when he was defeated by Ptolemy. The Ptolemies were in Egypt. Antiochus, first, second, third, all those, they were in Syria. Okay? North Syria. South Egypt. Well, they'd already had the battle. We studied that last time. And Ptolemy defeated Antiochus. So, he's furious. Well, 14 years go by, and he's headed back to try to do it again. He wants to be successful. So, Ptolemy, Philopater, the is dead at this time. And Ptolemy Epiphanes has succeeded to the throne and he's only four years old. So he's at the throne in Egypt, in the south. So now you've got a different king of the south. The angel points out um, many from within and from out would attempt to get advantage over this boy king of Egypt those inside that the Egyptian empire and those outside. Antiochus teamed up with Philip, king of Macedon, and agreed to split the territories that belonged to the king of Egypt. During this 14-year period, Antiochus Magnus 
had much success conquering the east, Antiochus the Great, same guy. And so he got defeated when he tried to conquer Egypt, and so he went back home, and then he started, during that 14-year period, he was moving and invading towards the east, and he was having a lot of success. As he made his way south to Egypt, he decided to invade a place called Koele, Syria, and Palestine. Remember, he's coming from the north, so he's going to come right through Palestine to get to Egypt. Okay, he wants to go here, but on the way down, this is what kept. This is where God's people. That's what you want to focus on what God's people were going through, okay? And so as he goes down, uh, he decides that he's going to invade Palestine. And Ptolemy Philopater had earlier, of course, before his death, he had gained control over them. So naturally, when Ptolemy Epiphanes ascended to the throne, the four-year-old king, well, then he automatically had control of these lands. The angel then points out to Daniel that some of his own people, he calls them the robbers of thy people, or as the New King James says, violent men of your people. You see, there were violent people that were Jews, of course. The truth is, the majority was pretty wicked. That's why they ended up in captivity, wasn't it? But God always had his remnant of faithful followers. Okay? But he's talking about those that were not faithful followers, the violent ones. They would take advantage of the young king, and they would attempt to throw off his authority since he had control over them. Egypt had control over Palestine at that time. Uh, they would attempt to throw off that authority and become independent. But of course, as the angel says, they would not be successful in doing that. It does one well to remember that during that period of time in history, when wars were continued, uh, when wars continued to be fought between Syria and Egypt, many of the battles were fought in Palestine. So when you think of them fighting, you think, well, they, the, the Syrians went down to Egypt and fought. No. Well, the Egyptians went up to Syria and fought. No. They usually met right where God's people were. And that's where most of the battles were fought. So you can imagine what happened to God's people. History reveals that Palestine went back and forth between Syria and Egypt. So whoever won the battle would be the ones that would have control over God's people in Palestine. At this particular time, it belonged to Egypt, but Antiochus the Great, or Magnus, he wanted it back. You know how kings are. They don't want just some, they want all. The more they have, the more they want, just like most rich people. Many of the Jews wanted to be under the rule of Antiochus, though. So they welcomed him into Jerusalem. They gave him provisions for his army and even for his animals. And you remember we mentioned they had elephants and things like that in battle back then. We will probably mention one of the Maccabees, one of the sons uh, who was fighting and revolting against some of this that was going on and trying to stand for what was right actually ran... Uh, under an uh, elephant and speared that elephant. And that wasn't very wise because the elephant landed on him and that's how he died. Uh, but they used elephants then in battle. You know, that's something we probably don't think about a whole lot. They also, these wicked ones, they also assisted Antiochus in taking the land back from the Egyptians. Antiochus would stand in the glorious land. Do you know what that is? 
when you read about the glorious land, the glorious land is Palestine. It's where God's people were, where Jerusalem was, Judea. He was totally successful in conquering Palestine. Verse 17. And he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither be for him. What's that talking about? Well, after going to Palestine and defeating those that were in control and defeating those uh, Egyptian soldiers that must have been there in the, in the glorious land to, uh, to guard and protect and all, Antiochus would then set his face to enter into Egypt. That was his original plan. But he would, and he would determine to, another way of saying it is, he, he would, was determined to go conquer it. Several times in this chapter it talks about them setting their face in a direction. Well, that just simply means they were going to head in that direction to do battle, to conquer it. Okay, So that's all that meant. He would also summon his whole army for that battle to go into Egypt and to fight. He also expected the upright ones to assist him in war. Well, who would the upright ones be? The upright ones would be the Jews that would be considered as the upright one. So he was expecting some of the Jews to go help him fight this battle against Ptolemy and the Egyptians. At the same time, Rome, remember this, was becoming a power to be dealt with. And Antiochus engaged Rome in battle. So he goes down and he takes Palestine then he sets his face to Egypt, but then the Romans get in his way. Well, when we talk about these four world empires, to make it simple, it looks like they just, one started and, the other, and then ended, and another one started and then ended, but there were a lot of things going on that make it more complicated than that. It's just like Rome's not the world power, but Rome is wanting to be. Rome is under control uh, under the control of the world power, the Grecians, but, but they're trying to grow an army to be able to overcome, to fight, and to be over Egypt uh, because they want to be the world power. And then you got others uh, that have already been defeated, but they're trying to mount up a group and to grow and to be able to get a large army and be able to take over. And so you got a lot of uh, wars and battles and things going on. And so... When he engaged himself in battle with Rome, this became a great hindrance to his original mission to conquer Egypt. In fear that Egypt would join ranks with Rome, and that's because he knew that Ptolemy would favor Rome if, if that king, the young king, had to choose between uh, Syria or Rome, he would choose Rome. And so the last thing that the king of Syria wanted was for Rome to team up with Egypt. Then there was no way he could win. And these kings would do anything to have their way and to be able to win. And so in fear of that happening, Antiochus the Great would petition the authorities of Egypt for a merging of powers of Egypt and Syria into one nation to help protect both from Rome. Which, as you know, uh, 63 BC, Rome becomes the world power. So it's going to happen. It's, it's developing and it's going to happen. So, so he decides, well, what I'll do is I'm going to be more crafty. And instead of just going down there and try to just wipe out Egypt and take over with power, I've got another plan. I would give my daughter to be that young king's wife. But you can imagine what that would do. Now you're mixing family between Syria and Egypt. 
You can imagine how that came into play. And so he arranged that marriage between his daughter. You know who her, what her name was? You won't find it in the Bible. Cleopatra. Between Cleopatra and Ptolemy Epiphanes. He did that in 197 B.C. So you, that gives you some idea on a timeline of what we're talking about here in that 400-year period, intertestament period. 197 B.C. But they were too young to marry at that time. And so the agreement was when they were old enough, his daughter would be married to Ptolemy. And that actually took place in 93 B.C., 193 B.C. And Coeli, Syria, and Palestine that Antiochus had taken from Egypt and conquered, he gave as his daughter's dowry back to Ptolemy. So the Ptolemies had it, Antiochus took it away, but then in this agreement for his daughter to marry Ptolemy, he gave that land back. And so Palestine went from being controlled by the Syrians to being controlled by the Egyptians again. So it's like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You can imagine what God's people were going through, especially the faithful ones. And then it says, she shall not stand. What that means is, she shall not stand on her father's side. You see, his plan to control Egypt was through his daughter. So he gave his daughter to the king so she could be kind of like a spy. You know, if you want to win a battle, if you can get your people behind enemy lines, especially in the palace where the king is, being the daughter of the king, she can feed you all kinds of information. And she can work on the king at the same time. But also, he had been putting evil thoughts in her mind. You see what kind of guy this was? This is where the kings were back then. He was going to use his daughter to be able to take over Egypt by putting her in there with Ptolemy, but it did not work. You know why? Because she was in love with him, and she was loyal to her husband and not to her father. But he tried. Verse 18, After this shall he turn his face into the isles, and shall take many. But a prince of his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach he shall cease it to turn upon him. He shall cause it to turn upon him. Then he shall turn his face, there it is again, toward the fort of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So, Antiochus the Great was unable to take Egypt. His plan didn't work because his daughter didn't go through with it. So he turned his face towards the isles of the Mediterranean. These islands were under the rule, think of this, of the Romans. So now you, you really want trouble. Antiochus attacked and subdued several of those islands. Rhodes, Samus, Colophon, and others besides those. It says in this section that the prince of his own the prince of his own behalf shall call the prince for his own behalf, I'll get it right in a minute, shall the reproach shall cause the reproach to cease. Antiochus the Great had humiliated the Romans by defeating them and taking their islands. You can imagine how they felt. Here comes this, this um, Antiochus, and he just 
says, well, I didn't get Egypt, so I'm just going to go over and take me some islands. In order to do that, you've got to walk right up in the face of the Romans and slap them around and take their, their islands away from them. Well, they're humiliated. The Bible says something about a, uh, about a prince. That prince, you don't read about him in the Bible, was a Roman general. His name was Seleucus Scipio. I'll spell that for you. It is L-U-C-I-U-S. S-C-I-P-I-O. And his other name, I'm not even going to attempt, it's kind of like Asia, uh, but longer, A-S-I-A-T-I-C-U-S. Pretty long name this general had. Well, this general would defeat Antiochus soundly at Magnesia, Magnesia, and that was about 190 B.C., causing the reproach of Rome to cease, and Antiochus was put to shame. He lost all presence of mind. He withdrew his garrison from all the cities on the Hellespont. Now, in order to have peace with the Romans, Antiochus had to submit to their terms. which were, number one, he had to surrender all his possessions west of Tarsus. T-A-U-R-U-S. Number two, he had to pay for the expense of the whole war. Number three, he had to agree to not keep any elephants. Number four, he had to keep no more than 12 ships. And number five, he had to agree to deliver to them 12 hostages, including his son, Antiochus Epiphanes. That's why they're so difficult. Some of them have the same names but they're from different areas, okay? So he had to deliver his son Antiochus Epiphanes. This stay of Antiochus Epiphanes in Rome would later have considerable bearing on the Jews. So never lose focus of Palestine, never lose focus of the Jews in all of this. As all this goes on, they don't lose focus of, of them because they're the main players in, in the big picture. Now, this Antiochus Epiphanes is actually the little horn that we studied about in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. Now we know where the pleasant land is, the glorious land. And he will also be the focus from Daniel chapter 11, verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter. So Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be the main focus of the rest of this chapter. In that section that we read, verse 18 and 19, it said, for his own behalf. For his is uh, Lucius, that general that we talked about. And it's talking about for his own glory and for that of Rome. He did what he did for his glory and for the glory of Rome. And then we find the phrase, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Now that was talking about Antiochus the Great. 
he died in an attempt to plunder the temple of Eleusimus. Eleusimus. E-L-Y-M-A-I-S. That's according to uh, uh, Barnes' commentary, page 225. Okay, uh, verse 20 of chapter 11. Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So who is this raiser of taxes that's going to come on the scene? After Antiochus the Great dies, who's going to take his place? Who's, who's next in line to sit on the throne in Syria? Well, the next was Seleucus the fourth. Philopater, Seleucus the fourth, Philopater, Seleucus, S E L E U C U S, Seleucus the fourth, Philopater, P H I L O P A T O R. He is the eldest son of Antiochus the Great. And he would become the king of Syria after the death of his father. Now he reigned, it says a few days, but really this type language, in comparison to how long his father reigned, it was only a short reign, but he actually reigned for 11 years. And he's known for heavily taxing the people so that he could pay Rome. That's how they did. And so he was paying tribute to Rome uh, and taking taxes from his people and giving to Rome. Now, Seleucus IV was actually poisoned by and this was one of those words, one of these names like five out of five is as hard as it gets. And my, my education ability only goes up to maybe a one and a half or a two. So here it is. H-E-L-I-O-D-O-R-U-S. Heliodorus or something like that. You figure it out. Okay, so that's what happened there. Now, verse 21. And to his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. The vile person is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. We've already studied about him in chapter 8. If you remember, Epiphanes means glorious or illustrious. Or you remember he was the one that uh, basically thought he was a god. One people would treat him as a god. He was the illustrious one. He ruled Syria from 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. During his reign, he greatly persecuted God's people. Severely persecuted God's people. He was horrible. He hated the Jews. The Jews nicknamed him Epimenes. Remember that? Remember what Epimenes means? It means the madman. So they kind of like gave him another nickname. Epimenes. E-P-I-M-A-N-E-S. We studied about him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. Now, his, his intention, his, his plan from the very beginning was to become king over Syria, which he was, but he wanted to also be king over Egypt as well at the same time. He wanted to control both. 
In the course of his reign, he invaded Egypt four different times, trying to conquer it, to control it. In this passage we just read, it has this phrase, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. What that means is, he would gain the throne in an irregular or a dishonorable way. It was not the will of the people for him to be crowned the king of Syria. The rightful heir was Demetrius, the son of Seleucus IV, Philopater. But at the time of his father's death, he was a political hostage in Rome. And so, you might want to make a note of this. Seleucus the fourth, Philopater, and Antiochus the fourth, Epiphanes, were actually brothers sons of Antiochus the Great. Also it says, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So he wasn't the rightful heir. So now, how was he going to do this? Plus, you remember, he'd been sent to Rome as a hostage. Well, after hearing the death of Philopater, Antiochus IV left Rome where he had been a hostage and returned home. In a time when the people did not expect it, Antiochus used flattering words and promises to get help to deceitfully obtain the throne. So he made, he made promises to people of power. Uh, he flattered them to help him be able to get on the throne when the rightful heir was still in Rome, his brother. Antiochus Epiphanes was born in Athens, Greece. He had spent 12 years as a hostage in Rome where he had gained a great respect for the people that were soon to rule the world. His mind was determined to Hellenize all in the region over which he ruled. His mind was determined to Hellenize. That means uh, to Hellenize means to convert them to Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek language, Greek ways. Um, we read about the uh, Hellenistic Jews uh, and the Grecian Jews and all, uh, widows and stuff in the, in the New Testament. So that's the idea. It's uh, to Hellenize. They became Hellenist. They were Jews, but they accepted the lifestyle of the Gentiles. They, they kind of turned their backs on God's ways and went for the Jewish ways. And you could get all into all their um, gymnasiums or their naked uh, playing sports in the nude and things like that. Uh, the Greek culture was very bad and uh, the culture in the United States is quickly following in that same direction. And that's where we need to really be careful. Okay, verse 22. And with, the flood, and with the arms of a flood shall they be overthrown, overflown from before him and shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. For he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. He shall enter peaceably even unto the fattest places of the province. And he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. 
Many of the Jews had surrendered to this Hellenistic way of life. In the earlier days of Antiochus IV, Jerusalem was ruled by Onias III, which was the high priest. Many of the Jews that had been Hellenized opposed Onias III, the high priest. Onias III had a brother named Jason. And what Jason did was he promised a larger tribute to Antiochus. In other words, he, he bribed him. He offered him more money. And so he put Jason in the place of Onias III to be the high priest and to rule over Palestine. So Jason was one who, being a Jew, yet pushed this Hellenistic view. And so that fit perfect with Antiochus because that was part of his plan, was to Hellenize the Jews to get them to leave God's ways and follow the Greek ways. And so now he takes away God's high priest and he puts one of his own in there who thinks like he thinks. So when the winds of change uh, begins to blow, as you know, there will always be those who will resist the change. And so it was in this case. The movement that resisted this change was the uh, Hasidium, or the pious party. Uh, these Jews defended the Orthodox Jewish way of life. And so, so you had this, this other movement that said, we're not changing, we're not leaving the Jewish ways. We're going to stay true to them. And so if that means we have to fight other Jews to stay true to what we believe, the way we are, who we are, then we're going to stay true. And so the arms of flood was the military forces of Antiochus. You think of the arms of a flood, they, they, they spread out, arms, and they gather in. The arms of a flood, you know how flood spreads. Brother Jimmy says, water always wins. So I'm thinking when I see flood, I'm thinking strength. Arms, strength. And so he's got strong military forces. Those that were overflown and broken and the prince of the covenant are believed by many to be the Jews with the prince being Onias III. We read about him in Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, where it says, And it, talking about that little horn, which represented Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, wax great even to the host of heaven. And it, Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn, uh, cast uh, down some of the host, which was the saints of God, and of the stars, which was the obedient Jews, to the ground and stamped upon them. Talking about the persecution that would come because of Antiochus Epiphanes. Others believe that's not the right interpretation. They believe that those who were overflown were the Egyptians because of the context of Daniel 11. And that the prince was that guy, H-E-L-I-O-D-O-R-U-S, who actually was the one who killed the king of Egypt, hoping that he would be able to become king. Heliodorus. Put all that together and you'll have his name. So the league that Antiochus IV would break was most likely the one that had been previously made between his father, Antiochus the Great, and Ptolemy Epiphanes. And that was when Antiochus the Great gave his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy to be his wife, and then he gave the diary of Palestine and the other place. And so what was broken was, he's like, I'm not going to stay true to that. I'm going to, I want Palestine. I want this land. 
And so at the time, the league is broken. The king of Egypt is Ptolemy Philometor, 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 P-H-I-L-O-M-E-T-O-R. Antiochus IV pretended to be a friend to Ptolemy, but he actually wanted to conquer Egypt the whole time. Remember the flatteries, the deceit? He moved in at first with a small army and eventually attacked on land and on sea, from, from sea, on land and from sea. He was able to accomplish what his forefather could not. Most of their wars were fought in Palestine, in that surrounding area. And they were fought for, for uh, possession of them. That's why they were fighting. They wanted that land right there so they would fight each other for that land in the middle. But he actually went into Egypt and he spoiled the land. He didn't get total control, but he spoiled the land and then he gave the spoils to his followers. See, his, his forefathers didn't do anything like that. One, they didn't get in that deep and two, they didn't give what they spoiled, what they took, the loot, uh, back to those that were followers of them. And so naturally, you see his deception and you see how he's bribing them, he's buying them. They don't like him, but he's giving them things. He's rewarding them for being on his side. It also said he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds. Uh, what that's talking about is he had thoughts or plans and schemes uh, to take the well-fortified cities of Egypt. And he started moving in and he'd take one city at a time. He just eased and gradually worked his way in, being deceptive, trying to make it look like he cared about the king there, was trying to help the king, uh, but he was all about himself and, and taking over. Um, I think we'll stop here. Uh, uh, let's take up uh, next Lord's Day with verse 25. Those of you who don't care a whole lot for history, I'm not a big on, uh, I didn't do so good in my history classes. Just bear with us. We'll get through chapter 11. We've only got uh, the rest of this chapter and two more to go, I think, and we'll be finished with the book of Daniel. Uh, you may be starting to understand now why I put it off so long. Uh, I knew it was going to be a challenge, especially in these later chapters. And sometimes to hold people's attention when you're going through history like that, it's, uh, it's a challenge unless you're a great history teacher. And I'm kind of feeling like one of my instructors up here teaching uh, preaching school classes right now. And uh, I don't do near as well as they do. But uh, that's the history that you need to know to be able to plug in and really understand what uh, this section of Daniel is talking about. So it's a real challenge and it's, it takes a lot of study to, to dig that out. I told somebody the other day it was like eating crab. I remember my dad used to fix crab and we had to work to get that meat out of there. And we had to work real hard for that crab meat, but it sure was good. And as I've been studying Daniel, believe it or not, I've been on this section right here for about three weeks. And as I've been digging and studying, what I've got out there has been really good to me and blessed me because I get to really have a better understanding of things that are very complicated. Uh, Daniel is likened to the book of Revelation in the New Testament. There's, uh, as far as difficulty, there's some of that you have in Revelation, you have in Daniel. But when you can line it up, put it together, uh, it's a great faith builder because you see that what the angel told Daniel would happen happened just like the angel said it would. God is always true. His word is always right. When people try to say, oh, the Bible's not true or it's got all these things wrong with it and it's not a reliable source, you can't trust it, they don't know what they're talking about. You study the book of Daniel, you'll see God's word is right. God told his prophets what he was going to do before he did it. And then the prophets would tell the people in word and writing 
And what God said to the prophets he was going to do, he did, just like he told the prophets he would. And Daniel is no different. Great detail. And it all came to pass, and no one can deny it, not truthfully, uh, because it can be proven that all those events and all those kings and all those things, all those leagues, those agreements, and all that, uh, those, those murders and, and the uh, deception, all that, that, took, that the angel said would take place and Daniel wrote about would take place, took place just like it said. Uh, God said it would. And so uh, God is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. You ever disagree with God, you're just going to be wrong. It's that simple. You may not always do what God tells you to do. You may not always do things just like God tells you to do. But don't you ever doubt God's word for one second. There's nothing that's more true than God's word. It's a right. And it will stand. Always. So what God has told us about saving our souls, if we obey the gospel, you can believe it. Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. It's absolutely impossible for God to lie. And if God tells us in his word that if we believe in him and we repent of our sins and we confess him before men and we're baptized into Christ that he will forgive us of our sins, you can mark it down. As soon as you go into that water, when you come out, every sin you've ever committed is gone. Washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And when the Holy Spirit had John write, if we walk in the light, seize in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ, cleanseth us from all sin, you can believe it. But also, in the same context, if we walk in darkness and do not the truth, we say we have fellowship with him, we're liars. You can't walk in darkness and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You see, it would be just as wrong for God to cleanse those walking in darkness as it would be for him not to cleanse those who's walking in the light. Behold the goodness and severity of God. He's promised from the beginning if we do what he says do faithfully, he will bless us. If we do not do what God tells us to do, <clears throat> we're not faithful in serving him, he's also promised that he's going to curse us. He'll punish us. That's not hard to understand, is it? And since God has said it in his word, we know it's true. There's no doubt about it. Just like we know what Daniel wrote is true. We know everything else that God had written uh, by his men. All the things are true. So if you're here this night and you haven't obeyed the gospel, know for sure that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And he's coming with flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. He's going to punish them with everlasting destruction from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. And so you need to make sure that you're right with him at all times because God will do what he promised to do. If you're here tonight and you need to respond, once you come, as together we stand and sing.